Hello, my name is Julian Honkasalo, and I will be having a conversation with Gus for the New York City Trans Oral History Project in col collaboration with the New York Public Library's Community Oral History Project. This is an oral history project centered on the experiences of trans-identifying people. It is the 20th of May, and this is being recorded at Jackson Heights. So, hi Gus, how are you feeling today? Good, how are you? I'm good, thanks. It's good to be here with you. Yeah. So, you are from New York, you are a native yeah. New Yorker. Yes. Can you tell a little yes. bit about what it was like to grow up in the city? Um, it was, I mean, it was definitely, you know, for, for, for me it was very much of a community feeling, um, is the thing that I remember the most about it. Um, you know, I grew up in Carroll Gardens in Brooklyn, which for those of, for those that don't know about Carroll Gardens, it, it was very much of an Italian neighborhood. We were, my family is Scottish and Irish, so we were, we were kind of like the Scottish family in the middle of all these Italians. Um, but, uh, you know, it was, it was definitely a lot of families. It was a lot of people hanging out, spending time together. Um, I remember, you know, every summer riding my bike up and down the block with a, with a bunch of other kids that went to to the public school or went to school with me, um, you know, playing in the park, doing that kind of thing. It was very, very much of like, you knew who your neighbors were. Um, and, and funny enough, uh, I lived two blocks from Smith street, which now is totally unrecognizable compared to what it, it looked like when I was a kid. You just didn't walk on Smith street. There wasn't anything there. And now there's like Starbucks and all these restaurants and, um, you know, the neighborhood has definitely changed. But, uh, but the feeling that I, that I, that I always come back to is, is, you know, I was very much part of a melting pot living here growing up. And do you think that has changed? Uh, you mentioned that gentrification, I mean, to a certain extent happened in that area. Yeah, I mean, but... I can't afford to live there anymore. <laughs> but, um, you know, part of the reason why I like the neighborhood that I live in now is it has a very similar feeling in that, um, you know, I, I know all of the people that own the restaurants on my block and, and the... The bodegas are, that are right here, everybody knows me. I know them. I know my mailman. Um, I know my UPS guy. You know, like the, these are important connections. I feel like um, we've lost a little bit with technology and the way that so much of our lives are online instead of actually living it in reality with other people. And so, when when you were growing up, was was gender a part of uh, your your growing up? Like, when did you start? hearing about trans um, stuff or the term trans or trans communities was I'm, that I'm, part? I'm 37 and I didn't hear the word trans until I was probably 30 or 31 um, which you know thinking about that I don't I don't know how that was actually possible but it was <laughs> because I I thought that you know because I identified as a butch lesbian for a really long time and I thought that that was my only option. I thought that I had to go through life living as a masculine woman, being unhappy about it, and that there was no other avenue for me. Um, so that word was not on my radar. I did not have a lot of trans friends. In fact, the, the first trans person I knowingly met um, was best friends with the girl that I was dating at the time. And, you know, it's very interesting because he and all of his friends used male pronouns for me, even though I didn't say that was what I was doing. Um, it was like they saw something in me that I didn't see yet. And, and I still think about that and think that it's really funny. Like, how could they have known before I knew? But <laughs> maybe they did. I don't know. <laughs> so, um, but in terms of growing up with gender, there was no, 
I basically feel like my mom raised me in a genderless household, whether or not she knew she was doing that. There was never any pushback if I didn't want to wear a dress. I didn't have to wear a dress. Um, you know, I was basically allowed to just be myself, no matter what. Which, I mean, not a lot of kids get to grow up that way. So, yeah. So you went to a Catholic school. Mm -hmm. How how was that growing Besides up? Besides the uniforms, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, the religion was a, was obviously a daily focus of that school. And, um, you know, my family went to church on Sundays kind of thing. We weren't crazy churchgoers, but we were, we were there enough. And, uh, you know, I just remember Catholic school feeling very restrictive because like it, it wasn't, I don't know. I have a very complicated, I always say that I'm a recovering Catholic because I have a very complicated relationship with it. Um, I was a devout Catholic when I was a child, like when I was three, four, five years old, I loved church. I loved the whole thing. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, in fact, I remember this one, this one time it was the Christmas Eve mass and my whole family was there and I must've been two or three and I got, I got away from my mom and I ran up to the altar on the side of the altar where they had a nativity scene. And I just read, cause I wanted to just be close to it. And the priest was in the middle of his sermon and he actually stopped and he went, you know, look at the power of God, with this child just running up, whatever it was. I don't remember what he said. But, uh, you know, I was really into it when I was little, and um, I was baptized Catholic, and I went to my first communion, um, and I, I didn't end up getting confirmed because they told me I had to wear a dress, and I went, no. And I went home and I told my mom, that's it, I'm done. I'm done with religion, I'm done with the church. This is not me, this is too restrictive. I'm not, I'm not doing it. And she went, all right, fine. <laughs> and how old were you? Uh, I was 16 or 17. At that point, but you know, we had once we had moved to New Jersey from from Brooklyn, which happened when I was about ten years old. Um, we didn't go to church nearly as often as we had before, so um, it wasn't it wasn't that big of a shock that I didn't want to continue on with uh, with with Catholicism. It's a hard word to say. <laughs> yeah. So you were saying uh, that that you had the feeling that the only option for you was to be a uh, masculine identifying lesbian. Mm -hmm. So how, how did you find other, like, did you find the gay community in, in New Jersey or how did it Yeah, actually, that's, that's when I, um, once I, once I came out, which I came out at 18, um, and I didn't come out, I actually came out because I had found a relationship. And in order, you know, my mom and I had always been very close, so I, I didn't want to keep this big secret from her. Um, so when I, when I finally came out to her, it was, it was only because I, I was in a relationship. Um, but then, you know, I wanted to obviously be around more gay people and, and figure out like who my community was. Um, so I started going out a little bit more and, and, and at that time there were a lot of clubs that would do like an underage night, like an 18 you'd get your hand stamped or a bracelet or whatever it was to say that you were underage, they wouldn't serve you. Um, and I started going out a little bit, but I didn't, I didn't really, um, I didn't really discover a big gay community in New Jersey until after I was 21. Um, I actually spent those years between 18 and 21 on tour. So I wasn't, I wasn't around a lot. <laughs> um, I discovered a whole new world on tour of, uh, you know, I mean, every, every conceivable type of person, we went, we went everywhere. We were internationally touring. So I, I went to Australia, I went to Europe. Um, 
I've been to every continental U.S. state, which is pretty neat. Still not Alaska or Hawaii, and that's definitely on my, on my list. But, um, you know, I, I like to say I got my college education on that tour bus, and it really... I, I, saw, I, met, I met people I never would have met. I, I saw places I never would have seen. And, uh, yeah, so can't learn that so, from a book. <laughs> so music, yeah. yeah, so music was an important important part of... I mean, it still is, but music was an important part of you. You are growing yeah. up and you're a drummer. Well, I actually, and I come from a musical family, so it wasn't a question of if, it was a question of when. Um, my grandfather was a professional jazz musician who played with... Harry James and Benny Goodman and Tony Pastor and all of these people. And um, my mom and my biological father were in a band together in the 70s. And both of my aunts are musical. One of them was on Broadway. And her daughters, um, one is a cabaret singer and the other is Fiona Apple. I don't know if you've ever heard of her, but um, yeah. Fiona's my cousin. So I share a lot of musical genetics. Um, I'm the only drummer, which I find funny because I'm in a family of singers, and I think I did that to rebel <laughs> against the family of singers. But even my little sister, my little sister lives in Burlington, Vermont, and she's a musician. Um, she's got a couple of music projects, and, and she is a fantastic singer, and she's kind of who everybody calls when they need a singer on something. They'll call my sister. So, so it's in there. It's always been in there. So how was it, I'm going to get back to you being on tour, so, yeah, yeah, but yeah. how was it like picking up the drums? Like how, how did that happen? And um, what was it like? For I you? was really bad for the first year and then it just clicked. Um, and actually my mother didn't tell me that my biological father was a drummer until I had been playing for about three years. Um, he was, he, you know, he, uh, he was never, never a part of my childhood. Um, so, you know, I, I, I'm thankful for the good pieces of him that I got. Um, and actually, if you want to circle back to that, I have quite an interesting story about him that I'll share later. But, uh, yeah, the, the, uh, well, where, where were you going with <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, you, you started playing yeah. the drums right. and then you right. went on tour. Yeah. So, but how did that happen? Um, I was playing in a band when I was about 16 and my guitar player and bass player were very good friends with, um, this band called the Lunachicks who had started in the early 90s. They were they were part of the um, Riot Girl scene, New York punk scene, and uh, had steadily been increasing in popularity since they started. Um, and we had the opportunity to open for them the night that they recorded um, their live album. So I got to meet the band. They got to see me play. And, you know, two years later, I got that kind of dream phone call that everybody wants of like, hey, um, we had to fire our drummer. Do you want the gig? And it was, you know, I don't know if you've, <laughs> this is such a ridiculous uh, reference, but that movie Rockstar with, with uh, Mark Wahlberg, when, when the, the guitar player of that metal band calls him and he's like, yeah, do you want to come and audition for us? It was very much that moment of like, oh my God, one of my favorite bands is asking me to be their drummer. And like, they really want me to do it. So um, they threw me into the deep end. I had to learn like 30 songs because they had five albums or something. I had to learn 30 songs in about a two and a half week period and then we left for almost two months and uh, we were supporting the Buzzcocks which are a very famous English band um, and we toured all around the US and living on a tour bus doing the, doing the whole life as an 18 year old my eyes were, were opened <laughs> to, to a lot of things very quickly so yeah and this was in yeah. 1998? 99 99, 99. Okay. Yeah. fall of 99 do you want to tell more about what the tour 
bus life was like to um, stay to I actually, I don't think I've ever slept better than the sleep I got on the tour bus. There's something about, like, the rhythm of the road that just knocked me out. But, um, you know, I mean, it's it's intense. You're you're on top of people all the time. It's, it's really hard to get any space. Um, but it was, I mean, you know, that's not a complaint whatsoever because most bands never get a tour bus. <laughs> so, um, you know, like there, there are some interesting rules, like you can only pee on the tour bus. And, uh, our, our driver was, was exactly what you'd picture a tour bus driver to be like. I think his, if I remember his name was Dale and he was like six, five or something. And just, we were all afraid of him. <laughs> scared of him but uh you know it's like the whole thing of like don't lock yourself out of the tour bus um and just clean up after yourself you know I, I learned a lot of life lessons really fast about how to be personally responsible for my for my own stuff um because it was my responsibility to make sure that my gear was in working order and that I had the things I needed and that I was um eating well and not you know like I was underage and making sure that if I was drinking I wasn't being stupid about it because that's not, I wouldn't want my band to get in trouble. Um, you know, we were, we crossed into Canada. So there was a lot of like, make sure all your paperwork, it's like life skills that I would have gotten in a different way, but I was really thrown into it. So, you know, I grew up, I grew up quickly. Definitely. And how was the punk scene in New York city at that time? I miss it. Um, it was amazing. It was, it was so much of a community again, Um, and the great thing about the punk scene and the punk community is they don't give a crap who you are. If you're into the music and you're a good person, you're accepted and that's it. They don't care about gender. They don't care about sexual identity. They don't care about any of that stuff. Sorry. Um, so the fact that I had just come out was like not a big deal. It was, it wasn't a thing. And in fact, every Lunachicks drummer, um, is part of the LGBT community in some way or another. So I share that history with the other two. <laughs> so so you, you mentioned that, that all these people were part of the LGBT community. Was it something that was a part of the music scene back then in general, that there was more representation of LGBT and women? or There were definitely uh, so many women, um, especially after I left the Lunachicks. Um, I had a, like a five-year period where I was doing playing with a lot of local bands, trying to figure out what the next step was. And those were the kind of... Um, I mean, everybody was there to see everybody's band. It wasn't the kind of thing where you show up for like one friend and then everyone leaves. You stayed. You were there for the whole night because all of your friends were there and all of your friends were playing. And it wasn't like, oh, your band is better than mine. It was like, let's get a bill together where we can all be part of it. Um, so again, it's just family and community. I didn't realize like how much of a through line I've had with that. Um, But, you know, there were there were so many all-girl bands. It was mostly all-girl bands at these shows. And what was really great was seeing, like, all the, the male musicians giving respect to all these female musicians in a way that, like, they should have all along. But, you know, when you've got five bands on the bill and it's all women, you have to respect that. And they, they did. And that was great. Um, you know, and, it, and it, it was definitely... I maintained a lot of connections. I made some new connections through that, um, which, which brought me to my next project actually, which, <laughs> um, again, I got that dream phone call. Um, it was for a band called Les Zeppelin, which is an all female Led Zeppelin tribute. And, uh, you know, it was very much like, Hey, I'm the guitar player for this band. We heard this demo you did. We think that you'd be perfect for this. And I kind of went, 
yeah, I this is my dream. I definitely want to do nothing but play Led Zeppelin. Awesome. Um, so again, it was like, well, we have this tour coming up in two weeks. Can you learn 50 million songs and come play with us? And, you know, I, I broke out all my records and got to work and watched every DVD and video I could find and, uh, and set off for three and a half years doing that all over the world. So you toured, no, you, no, you were how old? I was 25. 25 and now you're 26. World yeah. tours. Um, yeah, I mean, it's funny, we, we were, we were really big in New York, we sold out every venue we played here. Um, we were really big in Colorado, because we did the ski resort scene twice a year, um, two weeks in the summer, two weeks in the winter. And then our, our home away from home was Germany, believe it or not. The, the, I, I love the Germans, and their love of Led Zeppelin. <laughs> it is remarkable. You know, it's like, you've never, I mean, and we saw it a little bit when we went to Tokyo, the fanaticism. Um, of like people waiting in our hotel to meet us and we're like we're just four people from New York what do you want with us you know like we're just we're, whatever um, it was amazing to see the response because it was all of these people who had loved Led Zeppelin in their teenage years and they get to relive it with us every night and they're bringing their kids to the shows who are seeing Led Zeppelin for the first you know not claiming that we are Led, we were Led Zeppelin but we were we were pretty great at what we were doing and we took the music and we really tried to make it our own and go, like, is this something that they potentially could have played that night? Like, is this jam in the spirit of Led Zeppelin? Let's do that. Um, so, you know, it's typical tribute bands get dressed up like the members and they try to execute everything note for note. We were going more for, like, let's, let's take the music and our own individual musicianship and let's just see what happens with it. Um, and it was a beautiful thing. And it was, it was amazing to see you know, everybody in the audience was right with us the whole time, just like, you know, hanging on every note the way that you'd want them to. And, you know, when that big drum fill is coming, I better nail it because there are 50 drummers in that audience that are going to critique me if I don't get it right. So the pressure of that, uh, but it just, it just drove me to, to do even better. So yeah, there's, there's really nothing that I've found that even comes close to that in terms of like musical fulfillment. <laughs> yeah. And so, so where did you go after that? Um, where did I go after that? In after, terms of your mu music career? Um, I've done... Right now, I mean, like, since, since leaving the band and now, my career has shifted a little bit. Um, I'm also a dog trainer. And, uh, which is funny because when I first started playing drums at 10 years old, my parents wanted to make sure that I was serious about it. So they said, we're not going to buy you a drum set. But if you, can, if you can figure out a way to come up with half the money, we'll chip in the other half and you'll get some drums. So I started walking all of the neighborhood dogs in Princeton, which is, which is how I came up with the money. So dogs and drums have always been the two most important things in my life, and I still get to do both of those today. Um, but yeah, I, I walked all the neighborhood dogs to save up money for drum equipment. <laughs> so in between touring, um, I was running a dog walking business in New Jersey. And, uh, and that kind of morphed into dog training. Um, say about eight years ago, I met my mentor trainer through a teaching program here. And actually it's, it's, uh, through animal behavior college, which is like an online, um, education program. And then you do an in, in person mentorship and a friend of mine actually knew my mentor trainer. So I requested to work with her and, uh, 
so once that happened, I, I started training dogs full time, which is what I'm doing now. Um, and I, you know, I've been, been trying to figure out my next musical project. I've done some studio work. I've done some fill in gigs here and there for people. Um, I really miss being on tour. So that's something I'm still looking for the next, the next avenue to do that. Um, but I've just been trying to keep myself busy, keep myself playing. You, 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 uh, do you have currently a band? Yeah, I have. Uh, I, it's so funny. I, I feel like I've gone back to my roots a little bit. I'm playing um, in an all-90s cover band, which is great because this is the music that I learned how to play drums listening to. Um, and I'm also in an all-queer Rage Against the Machine tribute, which has been really fun. So I feel like, and maybe maybe this is true for, for everybody when they hit their mid-30s, that they, you know, there's like a, a certain yearning for nostalgia of teenage years. But like all that music still means more to me than any other music. So um, it was kind of natural for me to find something that would allow me to play that again. And, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not really sure what the future holds for any of these things, but I'm, I'm open to whatever comes. So, so how is it to play today? I mean, you have a background with the punk scene and the, yeah. the, the end of the 90s towards yeah. the beginning of the 2000s. And also you have experience of playing before the era of the internet and Facebook and all right. this. Do you want right. to tell more about that? Um, I think it just, you know, the, the internet has been great, but it's really hurt the music scene in terms of participation because it's very difficult to get people to go out and see your band when they know that they're going to see pictures and video of it on Facebook the next day. There's not a lot of incentive to get, to get out there and have the experience, um, which is just sad. And I, I think what we've seen, or at least like what I've been conscious of in the last five years, is a lot of these bands are reuniting and doing like reunion tours, um, which is great because it's kind of waking up all of us <laughs> to remember what it was like to, to be going to these shows all the time. You know, it was, it was much easier to go to a concert back then. It was cheaper, first of all. Um, we were all younger, so we could stay up later. That wasn't, <laughs> wasn't the same challenge that it is now. Um, but you know, the, the community feeling is not there. And actually I, I just went to see L7 last month. It was the first time I'd ever seen them, even though I've been a fan since the early nineties. And I just remember like all of these people in the audience and, you know, not like I have any kind of ownership over that band or anything, but going like, well, where have you been for the last 20 years? You know, like this band has always meant something to me. Like it's, you're, you know, it's kind of like those, what is it? Jumping on the bandwagon. It's almost like you, you want the band to still be successful, but like you miss the fact that like you and so many people have been fans for 20 years. And then all of these new people are just discovering them. And you're kind of like, this was mine first. I don't know. It's a little selfish to think that way, but, uh, the community feeling even at the show is not the same. It's not like you're all there together. It's very much like, oh, I'm going to take a selfie and the band's behind me. And then I'm going to get, you know, 150 likes on Instagram. It's th that, what does that mean? It means nothing. Put your phone down and, and be there for the band because they're working their asses off to entertain you. So I think that that's something that frustrates me is, is, is music is still, you know, like performing. You're, you're giving something to people. That's what's always been a big thing about it for me is like I, I'm giving, it's a gift for me to be able to play it, but it's also a gift for me to be able to give it away. And I think you miss some of that if you're too into all the social media stuff. So I feel like that part has hurt us a lot. 
So how does it feel when you were when you were playing? You you mentioned that you you went to see L seven, so yeah. you were a member of the audience. But when you're playing, do you feel is it different the interaction with the audience when you're on stage or in in those settings? Or I mean, being the being the drummer, it's it's always interesting because I have you know I, in in some sense I have a barricade between me and the people because my drums are there. Um, I'm certainly the loudest thing on the stage, <laughs> but uh, I don't know perfor performing. Being an audience, like going to see a band that I really love just makes me want to perform better because I want the people in the audience to have the same experience that those people just gave me. Um, so it's a lot of, it's a lot of that give and take. Um, and knowing that what I'm doing is making somebody else happy, like, you know, I, we should not, we shouldn't be selfish with that. So, yeah. So how is the how is the project with the Rage Against the Machine queer? Um, yeah, it's it's uh we have a we have a gig coming up in a couple of weeks actually. We only we only play like once or twice a year. Um so we we just started rehearsals for it. It's very exciting. But it's also it's an interesting thing for me and this this is this is I think where my trans identity kind of plays into where my music is currently. Um I have I have I I am known the two bands that I am the most known for, I guess, were all female bands. Um, and now that I'm transitioning and I don't identify as female, I guess the question for me is how do I bring my past experience and the, you know, the, the, the history I have, how do I bring that into the present moment? Um, because my rage tribute is all queer, but they're all queer women. And then there's me. And so if somebody looks at us on stage, they're not going to see that the drummer is trans. They're going to assume that I'm a lesbian. And when people talk about, oh, yeah, you know, um, Gus was the drummer of Les Zeppelin. People are like, I'm sorry, what? Because they're, they might be, you know, they're seeing me for who I am today, talking about before. And, you know, people forget the T and the acronym all the time. <laughs> so it's kind of... It's, I don't know, it's, it's, it's weird to try to explain it, but it's almost like I don't, I don't want to erase my past, but I also, my past gives the wrong impression about my present, I guess is the best way to say it. Um, so I'm still trying to figure out how to avoid having to come out all the time over and over and over again when I talk about what I, what I used to do. Do, so, yeah. do you have a community of other trans musicians or? Yeah, I do. I actually um, play with, uh, he, he lives on the West Coast now, but Ryan Casada, who's a trans musician singer. Um, I was his drummer. And actually, when we, when we play live, I'm sure that I will be his drummer again. Um, but we had an all trans band that we put together. So all four of us were trans. And that was cool because, you know, If you're at the show, you know what you're going to get. It's not like you show up and then you find out. <laughs> so um, we used that definitely as a platform. We went and did some um, speaking engagements and performances at universities to try to help educate more about what it is to be trans, but also to be in a band with all trans people. Um, you know, there's nothing particularly unusual about it, except that to, to you know, a band is very much like a relationship. And in order to, to be your best, you have to be able to be yourself completely. And so to be in an all-trans band where my gender or my pronouns were not going to be challenged, you know, that's, I mean, that's, that's a dream.
So, and, and not like my, my pronouns or my identity have been challenged in any of my other bands, but, um, you know, it's kind of hard to be the only one. And the moment, like, so, so for example, like my nineties cover band, they're all, they're all straight. And in order for them to work with me, in a sense, they have to be open to a political aspect of the band that perhaps they weren't open to before. So having me, like if I'm the only trans person in the band, it becomes a political statement right away. And so, you know, they have a choice whether or not they want to take that on. So that's, that's always been a thing for me when I'm looking for projects is, I'll play with you, but you're going to get more than just a drummer because of who I am. And how is the response from the, the 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 community of listeners or the fan base mm. of the bands? Is do you see how how do they react to the fact that trans is perhaps I mean it is at the, today much more right. talked about and visible. There's there's visibility and then yeah. then not right. Um, my rage my rage tribute band tends to play a lot of gigs that are are very queer friendly because that's the scene um, that that we just all happen to be in. Um, with the 90s cover band, which is called The Secret Lives. Uh, I'm not aware that anybody in the audience actually knows that I'm trans or not. And it's not something that we talk about. It's not something that we advertise. Um, you know, my band members themselves are very accepting and they totally support me. But I don't know what they say to their friends about me in terms of when they describe the band. I would hope that they've listen to the information that I've given them and that they are um, representing me accurately. But, you know, that's a different conversation. <laughs> yeah. So, so at the same time when the uh, music scene or the punk scene started declining from the East Village, yeah. uh, that's, that's about the same time as uh, when trans as a term in the 90s, when slowly our community started getting more visibility. Yeah. Uh, and you're, you're saying that on the other hand, those people that you played with back then and their fan base are not so accepting uh, towards the fact that a member of the band is now a trans person in all women bands. Do you, do you want to say something more about that? Well, I think, I think what's interesting is when I run into people now that I used to know in the early 2000s, it's amazing how many of us have transitioned, honestly. I'm like, oh, oh, okay. Like I, I have, uh, I have several friends who I just recently found out that they're starting to transition, and I'm like, wow. I mean, if we had known this about each other back then, I don't, I don't know. But um, you know, it wasn't like the lesbian lesbians and and gay men were always centered in that conversation. And if you were bisexual or transgender or even queer, it was like, that's nice, but that's not the focus. Um, you know, and I, and not only was I the only, at the time, the only girl, or not the only, but the only, the only LGBT person in the band, uh, even if they were all women, I was still, I was still the only LGBT person in the band. So it was very much like they, they accept me, but I'm still othered. And so that's what really started having me question a big piece of my gender as well was, was the feeling of being othered or being other um, and not being able to put my finger on why I felt that way. Because it wasn't just like, I'm in a room full of lesbians and I'm the most butch one here. 
that wasn't it. Yes, that happened to be true, but that wasn't what I was feeling. I was feeling like I, there's something about my identity that I'm, I'm, I can't, I can't put my finger on it. I can't even verbalize what it is, but I am separate from you somehow. And I don't, I don't know what that is. Um, and that's where I think that whole thing about me feeling like I had to live like a masculine woman forever and just be okay with that. Once, once I became aware of the idea of transgender identity, it was, you know, it was, <laughs> was kind of like the clouds parted and there was like a rainbow, you know, like that whole moment of like, oh my God, I don't have to suffer anymore. Like there is actually language to describe my experience. And I think Honestly, we are way ahead of our language, and that is what presents major problems when we talk about our community, is, you know, we only have certain verbal concepts, but so so much of what's happening, like at least for, for my experience of my own trans identity, so much of it is internal that I can't put words to. Um, so I'm hoping that someday our language catches up with our experience, but I don't know when that's going to happen. And how did how did you find uh, some kind of language to express you? You said um, that when you discovered trans identity, how did that happen? So for you? funny enough, um, I had I had a trans friend who um, had top surgery, and I was like, oh, I wish I could do that because for my entire life, I always felt like my my chest was like a foreign. Just, you know, I, I have a very weird way of describing it. But it's like, I, I, it was like an alien being was living on my body. And I wanted it gone. And I didn't know. So I didn't, I didn't understand that um, I didn't have to identify as trans in order to have top surgery. And when I figured that out, I went, oh, well, I'm doing that. And it wasn't, I, I didn't have top surgery because I was trans. I had top surgery to have top surgery. It was after I had surgery when I was, at, or actually like in the lead up, like the, the few months leading up to the surgery, I started to go on YouTube and I found all of these people on YouTube that were saying things that only I had ever said to myself in my head. And I went, that's interesting because I've, I've always felt that way, or I've always thought that, or, you know, I didn't know that was possible. I didn't know that other people were also feeling that way. Um, so... I kind of, I feel like I kind of came to my trans identity backwards compared to a lot of people. Um, but it was just this feeling of, of, of identifying with other people's experience that led me to discover my own, I guess. Um, which is, you know, I've been on, uh, I've been on hormones now for about 14 months. And in that 14 month period, I've even seen my identity shift three or four different times. So, um, in no way do I think that I'm done or at an end point. Um, you know, we're all in transition for our whole lives, whether we identify as trans or not. Let's not forget that. <laughs> that is what it means to be a human being is to evolve and, and grow. Um, we just do it under a microscope because everybody's watching. So, um, yeah. I mean, I think once I had the... So it was really the concept of, like, gender gender neutral gender non-conforming non-binary that i was like wait a second what i don't i don't have to i don't have to be an unhappy woman and i don't 
I don't know if I feel like a man. I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's right. And I wish there was some other word. Oh yeah, now there is. So it was, it was kind of, I did have like a light bulb moment with that. When you mentioned the, the language that there isn't words and, and yeah. that there should be more, do you find, uh, do, do, you, do you find the music uh, scene that you're in or your passion with music, do you find that as, as a possible avenue for articulating those experiences? I mean, I know it's music, it's not verbal, yeah. but, but you, you, you talked a lot about, or what I'm hearing is a lot about the different kinds of communities and, mm -hmm. and on one hand, that, 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 that whole experience was a channel for you to, to become who you are. So right. in terms of where we are heading now, do you, do you see that the, the music community could somehow be more inclusive in terms of trans musicians? Or? I think, I mean, I think it, it comes down to, you know, the very point of, of this project, which is visibility and using our own words to describe our experience. Um, just by virtue of me showing up is a radical act because I'm not afraid to talk about who I am. Um, and even if you watch me play and you don't know that I'm trans, if you find that out, I would hope that you would still, you know, that's, I'm saying this, but I would hope that you would see me as a drummer who just happens to be transgender instead of a transgender drummer. And that's really important because being trans is only part of who I am. Um, and right now it's, it's a, the it's in the forefront of my life because I'm still early in the medical part of it. So there's there's a lot of, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm paying attention because I'm changing and evolving every day and it's it, I can almost feel these things happening. But um, I really look at music as a platform just to, just for exposure, you know? What I, what I would hope is that they would they would hear the band and they would love the band and it wouldn't matter who would be in the band. But that's that's like a privilege because right now we have to care about who's in, who's doing what. Um, in order it, like in order to normalize the conversation, we have to have more visibility. And so I'm okay with being like pointed out, I guess. I'm okay with somebody going, well, that drummer's trans because I would want the trans kid in their bedroom to go, well, if they can do it, I can do it. You know, every, I mean, it's, it's, I think role models are important to the youth. I think that the youth of today, especially like college age kids are the ones that are creating the language that we're going to be using. Um, they're, they are the ones that are keeping this engine moving forward. So I don't know. <laughs> yeah, <that's> good. <laughs> well, um, thank you, yeah. uh, Gus. Um, is there anything else you'd like to share or? forgot to mention or um i think in terms of i for me my my experience with my family is is important because it's i have i have a really happy story of being trans which is not the norm um and i always find that important to think about and talk about because i want i mean i i want that for for every kid every trans kid i want them to be loved and accepted unconditionally by their parents which does not happen Um, so, yeah, I think, I don't know how to word it, but, um, I think it's really important for, I mean, not even kids, but just, but just trans folks in general, um, that even if your chosen family is not supportive, you can find family and that we need it and we need 
you know, community has been such a big part of what we talked about today, but, um, we are, we are lost without community and we have to find it some way, somehow, um, which is the positive thing I think the internet has brought us is it's, it's provided a way to connect to other people, even if you don't live near them and still get support. Um, you know, and, and I think that's, that's been really important for me is even though I have my family support to find other trans people and support each other. Um, I don't know if that answers your, <laughs> your question, but, uh, and that, and that not, things may not always turn out the way you think they're going to turn out, but you know, like this whole idea of it does get better. I think it does. I think it does get better. But I think I think you have to you have to consciously work at making it better. It doesn't just happen by itself, um, which is something that I've taken into every area of my life. If I want to be successful, I have to do the work. And uh, so for so for all of us, I think you know we just have to we just have to keep doing the work, even on the days we don't want to be the educator. Sometimes we have to, because we're not we're not going to get to a place of trans acceptance unless we're all unless we're all doing it. Um, you know. I don't know. <laughs> was there something more that you wanted to tell about your positive? Uh, you said, I mean, your experience yeah. with your I mean, family. I mean, not just not just family, but you know, I'm I'm fortunate enough that I don't, I'm not at risk for losing my job or my housing because of my identity. Um, my boss is amazing, actually, because she constantly checks in about pronouns. She's like, are we we still, we still good with the pronouns? Is there is there anything that I can do to help with this? We had a company meeting. It's a small company, but we had a company meeting um, to talk about what to do if clients misgender me and how to handle that, um, and what to do if clients ask questions. And everybody was very open, and they were really uh, they were really receptive to being educated in that moment, which is great. Um, you know, and you don't always think about gender identity when you think about dog training, like. I don't know the last, you know, like, when does that ever come up? But, um, it's a, it's a very interesting experience to go into somebody's house who's paying you to be there to tell them what to do. And what do you do when you get misgendered? Like, and this, this, I'm bringing this up because this happens to me quite frequently. Um, I'll go into a home and usually it's a, a person with, with, you know, um, a fair amount of, of money and, they call me she or they or they say something and I have to make the choice then am I going to come out right now and make this and make my job about my gender or am I just going to deal with being misgendered and do my job the best I can and any pain that comes from that I'll just deal with it later and I don't I don't really have an answer yet it's it's kind of it, it differs based on the situation based on how safe I feel um but, you know, I think it's, it's most people when they come out at work, they probably only have to do it the one time where I feel like I'm doing it 10 times a day. And in a room full of my students, I might have five clients that are calling me he and five clients that are calling me she. And, you know, so I, I've, I've asked my boss to kind of take the lead. And if she uses my pronouns correctly, then other people will follow suit. So, you know, it's been a slow change, but, um, at the end of the day, I know that I'm still going to have a job. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not at risk for losing that, um, which is, which kind of made coming out a lot easier. So yeah.
Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Um, and do you want to add something else? I think I'm. I think I'm good. Well, thanks, guys. Yeah. It's been really nice yeah, talking yeah. to you. Really <laughs> appreciate you. your yes. time.